The book of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 9, and I'd like to read verse 9 again. We should read the first 8 verses and 9th, but please for time, we're just going to read the 9th verse and look at it, because it is just it is just so full. There's just so much in this verse of scripture, and, and there's so much that blesses the church. Just remember with me that Zechariah was a preacher of the gospel, and part of his ministry, maybe I should say all of his ministry, to the church was to comfort ye, comfort ye my people. And there is nothing better for the church to hear than how involved their Savior is involved for them. And that's brought out here in this passage of Scripture. The Lord God Almighty is involved on the behalf of the church, has always been involved, is involved in time, and will be with them throughout eternity. In the book of Zechariah, chapter 9 and verse 9, it says, Rejoice. What a statement that word is, to rejoice. And we looked last week about uh, Paul brought, was called on to write there to the Philippians, Rejoice always, and again I say rejoice. And we truly are able to rejoice, even in the worst of circumstances, we're able to rejoice in the Lord our Savior, to be saved, to be brought out of that horrible pit, to be brought to a knowledge of salvation in Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus alone, to have our righteousness only in Christ and depending upon nothing of ourselves, we have a Savior that truly saves His people from their sins. So he says rejoice, and not only does he say that, he says rejoice greatly. Rejoice greatly, and then he tells us who is to rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Now this daughter of Zion and daughter of Jerusalem are another names, other names for the church. This is Old Testament names for the church. And we find even this is brought out in the New Testament. And we left last week with the book of Galatians chapter 4. So I'd like to start there and then we'll pick up at that point. In the book of Galatians chapter 4, <clears throat> we have this wonderful passage of scripture of a comparison between what it was to be under law and what it is to be under grace. In the book of Galatians chapter 4, and as the Paul, the apostle, he brought out very early in this book, chapter 1, he brought out that he was marveled at how uh, people had turned from the living God, turned from God, turned from Christ to another gospel, which is not another gospel. So uh, he spends a lot of time here telling us what the gospel is, and it just causes the, just, the church to rejoice in what the gospel is on their behalf. Here in Galatians chapter 4, beginning with verse 22, he uses this comparison, it's, he calls it an allegory. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh. Now Abraham had been promised that he'd have a son, he'd have an heir. And we find that time went on and time went on, and he and his wife contrived a way of doing that. And so we have this son that was born after the flesh. This is just a normal uh, fleshly birth. And then it goes on to say, but he of the free woman was by promise. Now, the mother of the bond servant, the bond slave, she was a slave herself. So he's going to use this comparison to tell us the difference between law and grace. Now, I heard tonight... Uh, an, an interesting comment on the study that we had there on the Zoom meeting, and it said, people say there are 
preachers that preach law and grace. And one of those men on there says, there's no such thing. You cannot preach law and grace. You're either going to preach law or you're going to preach grace. There is no, you can't preach the both of them. And Paul brings that out in the book of Romans. So when someone says, or we, we hear someone say, that preacher over there preaches law and he preaches grace, it's a lie. There's no way you can do both. So here it tells us, but he that was born of, of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he that was the free woman was a promise. Which things are an allegory? Now there's only one being that can take what looks like terrible circumstances and turn it out for good, and that's God. It is never left up to us to do wrong and say God will turn it into good. But God is able to do that, and he does it throughout the scriptures. He takes bad circumstances that are brought out by people, purposed by his eternal elective grace, and he turns it to good. We know that all things, all things work for good. God can do that, but we cannot. So we don't want to try it. It says here, for the, which things are an allegory, for these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Hagar. This genders to bondage. It brings bondage. We never received any spiritual blessing from the law. It's not in the law to give us a spiritual blessing. And it goes on to tell us, for this Hagar, this Hagar is Mount Sinai. In Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is. Now, he's speaking about the religious order of things in Jerusalem at this time. And if you went there, by and large, people were telling you that you had to have this done, you had to do this, you had to uh, accept this in order to be part of the members of the covenant. It was all under works. And we find that that's speaking about Jerusalem, which is in bondage with her children. And the next verse is, but Jerusalem, which is above. Now, we're taking from, from a literal, we're taking from a legalistic, we're taking here from this picture that uh, Hagar and her son are a picture of works, the law. And he turns it around and he says, okay, now let's take a, take a look at the real. Let's take a look where real life comes from. Let's take a look where real spiritual life comes from. And the real spiritual life comes from God. It tells us here that, but Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. So spiritual blessings come from Almighty God and Almighty God alone. And it's the church. It's the heavenly Jerusalem. Our spiritual blessings come as a result of spiritual birth. And God alone can produce and provide that very thing. So those who rejoice and rejoice in the Lord and rejoice in the covenant God and rejoice in grace, in order to do that, we must have this spiritual birth. Now turn with me back just a little bit to the book of Romans. As we look at this subject of law and grace and, and uh, uh, Hagar's son and the, the, the son of promise, here it tells us a little bit about that in Romans chapter 4 and verse 4. It says, Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. So 
we in our religious state are expecting God to reward us for work done. And in grace, God provides it all and we provide none of it. It is a spiritual blessing. We have all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. And then going back to the book of Galatians very quickly, in chapter 5 and verse 3, we have this mentioned about this great subject. It is works, law, does not accomplish anything on our behalf. There's no spiritual blessings in it. It's debt. We're expecting to be paid. And grace, God provides it all. He is our exceeding great reward. And here in the book of Galatians chapter 5 and verse 3, For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. So someone that says, I'm keeping the law, I, I'm circumcised under the law, and the Apostle Paul, led by the Holy Spirit, says, if you believe that, then you are required to keep the whole law. Well, we know that's an impossibility. Nobody can keep it. So grace is the only place that we get spiritual blessings. We are the children, we're called, and those daughters of Jerusalem and those daughters of Zion are called in the New Testament the children of God. It's just amazing that natural man, gospel brought to them, God in his infinite wisdom before the foundation of the world chose them, wrote their names down in the Lamb's Book of Life, and the Son of God determined to die on the cross for them in their stead and in their place and have their sins imputed to, to himself that he would promise to make us the children of God. Now that's a, beyond our ability to completely measure, but there's a blessing that is worth rejoicing in and rejoicing greatly in that we would be called the daughters of Zion or the daughters of Jerusalem or as we find in this place here we're called the children of God to be born of the father the heavenly father what a blessing God extends to us and if you'll look at with me for just a moment in the book of Romans again chapter 8 verse 21 Romans chapter 8 and verse 21 this glorious subject is brought up in Romans chapter 8 and verse 21. The scriptures share this. He says, Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty. Glorious liberty of the children of God. Now that gives us room to rejoice. The glorious liberty of the children of God. The daughters of Zion, the daughters of Jerusalem, the children of God, the church, and so many other names as they're found in the scriptures. So we have this wonderful blessing that we get to rejoice in. It's not rejoicing in ourselves, and it's not rejoicing in our accomplishments, but it's rejoicing in the accomplishments of Christ. It's rejoicing in He that calls us. He's the one that calls us His children, and we get to rejoice in that. He is our Father, and we are His children. And it's the glorious liberty of the children of God. The children of the flesh are not the children of God. Romans, while you're there in Romans, let's look there in chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, verse 8. We have this passage of Scripture left for us. And again, I'm reading verses of Scripture. Take the time to read verses before and after. But here it says, that is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. So, by nature, by nature, we cannot call ourselves the children of God. 
by nature, we cannot call ourselves the daughters of Zion or the daughters of Jerusalem. We don't have that capacity. We don't have the right to do that. Now, we find out that in salvation, we find out in the new birth that God has had children from eternity. We find out that we've been the children of God. It tells us in the book of Galatians that a servant has no difference than a son early on. But when God reveals his son to us, and we find out that we are the children of God, we're not under that bondage. We're not under the bondage of the law. We're not under the bondage of that. We have the precious liberty in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to tell us here, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. The children of the promise. God has made a promise before the foundation of the world, and he has promised to bring his children in, every one of them, every lost child he will bring in. And they, they shall be called in chapter 9 and, and drop down to verse 26. As we think about the, the daughters of Zion and the daughters of, of Jerusalem, here's just another name. He called the church. He called them the sheep of his pasture. He called many titles are given in the scriptures with regard to our name. The Lord our righteousness is the daughters of Zion and the daughters of Jerusalem and the children of God. And here in the book of Romans chapter 9 verse 26, And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. My goodness, to be called not my people and then the children of the living God. Reminds me of what Peter had to say when Jesus asked him, who do you say that I am? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's what we have. That's the position that the church has. That's the position that the daughters of Jerusalem have. That's the position the daughters of Zion have, are the children of the living God. Now, we're given the rest of our life to discover some of what that means. We're given the rest of our life to discover some of what it is to be called the children of God. And all that goes with it, the realm that we have to enjoy, the realm of grace. The, in the book of Isaiah, would you join me in the book of Isaiah? Isaiah chapter 62. In Isaiah chapter 62, we have this term brought up again that's found there in the book of Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9 and that's that's the the daughters of Zion in Isaiah chapter 62 and there in verse 11 behold the Lord hath proclaimed unto the end of the world Say ye to the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy salvation cometh. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work is before him. Here is called daughter of Zion. We have this term used in the scriptures to identify that there is one flock, there is one church, there truly is one daughter, but it's made up of daughters. We all make up what is known as the bride of Christ. But it is one bride, it is one church, it is one daughter in its whole, in its capacity. So we have the daughter of Zion, and what does it talk about here? Behold, thy salvation cometh. Now, that's not something that he passes out, that's a person that he gives us. Our Savior cometh, salvation cometh, thy salvation cometh, behold, his reward is with him. What is his reward? 
I love what the Lord shared with Abraham when it comes to rewards. Now, we are, we're not working for rewards. That's not what we're serving the Lord for. The Lord told Abraham, he says, I am thy exceeding great reward. He is our reward. Now, it's not something we work for, but it's a gift that he gives himself. He gives himself to the church, to the daughters of Zion, to the daughters of Jerusalem. And as we continue to look here, we find in Zechariah chapter 2, this subject was already brought up as we have been going through the book of Zechariah. Zechariah, let's just go back and review for just a moment. In the book of Zechariah, there in chapter 2 and verse 10, chapter 2 and verse 10, again, this continuous subject brought up. We have the Lord, we have His people. We have the covenant Lord, we have the covenant people. We have the elect Lord, we have the elect people. We have the called out Lord, we have the called out people. We have the Lord that loves, we have those He loves. We have the Lord of grace, we have those He's extended grace to. And it's always in that place we never find that the daughters of Jerusalem, the daughters of Zion, the church or the bride is before the Lord. Not before Him. We're always the results of Him. And here in the book of Zechariah, chapter 2 and verse 10, it says, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord. When we covered that, we, we were reminded of what a blessing it is to have God Almighty dwell with His people. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. The Lord is in his people. The Lord is in the congregation of his people. The Lord is with the daughters of Zion. The Lord is with the daughter of Zion. The Lord is always with his people. He will lose none. He's always directing their paths. He's always their direct leader. He is the Lord. He is the master. He is the king. He's the one that rules over all. And it tells us, uh, what is this rejoicing over? If you just drop down to chapter 9 again of this book of Zechariah, as we continue in that verse of Scripture, chapter 9 and verse 9, we find that the daughters of Zion are called unto rejoice greatly. They're called unto rejoice, O daughter of Zion, and shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Now, what is this all about? Well, we find through many verses of Scripture, there's a lot of spiritual blessings that the Lord gives us that we get to shout about, we get to glory in, we get to praise God about. But in this passage of Scripture, as in others, it tells us, Oh, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh. Now, what a, what a joy it is to have it said, Thy king cometh. Behold, thy king cometh. This is the church's king. This is the church's king. Thy king cometh. He comes in his glory. He comes in his power. He comes to his church and for his church. And he comes for everyone that is in the church. He comes in great power. He, um, he and as uh, the Apostle Paul in the 15th chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians it shares there a list of people that the Lord appeared to. 
the last one is so precious because you could put, if you know the gospel, if you know Christ, if he's your king and he's Lord and he's your reward and, and you're not by effort trying to appease God over anything, that he is all our salvation, that he is everything in our salvation, we find over here in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and there in verse uh, 8, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 8. Now there's a long list of people here that the Lord had visited with after his resurrection. Now those all meant something to those people. Those 500 brethren that saw him at one time, they, <laughs> the appearance of the Lord meant something to them. That was a wonderful time for them to see him in his resurrected glory. He appeared unto the twelve. He appeared unto Matthias. He appeared unto... And notice here in this verse of scripture though, and last of all, Last of all, the Apostle Paul was writing here to the saints at Corinth, and he wants them to know that the last of all, he was seen of me also. Now, all the appearances to all those other people were important to them, but all of those appearances to those other people meant nothing to Saul of Tarsus. In fact, when they started talking about the Lord appearing to them in his resurrected glory, he just got madder. He got worse about it. And here we find, and last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. Now, I have the blessed privilege of being able to say that about myself too. Last of all, he was seen of me. What a glorious thing to see the king in his glory. That he does what he is is required in order for us to see him in his glory. That we can shout, we can say Hosanna in the highest. We can shout as the daughters of Zion and the daughters of Jerusalem are to called on to do there in the book of Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Because behold your king cometh. Your king, we do not make him king. And we do not make him Lord. God has already done all of that. When he saves his people, when he delivers his people, when he gives them the new birth, they already know that he is Lord and King. They already That's given. That's a gift that God gives to us. With regards to the Lord, he does not have to be called Lord by us. He is already Lord and he is already King. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation chapter 6, if you would. Revelation chapter 6. And there in verse 1 and 2, Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard as there were the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. Now we read this Sunday. Fit right in Sunday. We're going to read it tonight, because it fits right in tonight. This is our Lord. This is our king. This is the one who conquers, is conquering and to conquer. You know, uh, the Lord has never lost a battle. He's been in many battles, but he's never lost a battle. He went up against Mansoul. I remember reading that, the, the uh, book by John Bunyan that had the overcoming of Mansoul. Holy War. It did more for me than Pilgrim's Progress, and Pilgrim's Progress was great. But 
this holy war, God coming up against a person that has no interest in a holy God, no interest in a Lord, no interest in a king, and God comes up and he defeats us. Now, I kind of like what Scott Richardson used to say about that. He saved me against my will with my full consent. Now, it's after it's over with, do what you need to do. Do what you need to do. Because I'm so thankful that I am where I am because you brought me out of a horrible pit. So here we have this one. I saw and behold a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him. Now, do you think that this is the one that appeared unto Adam and Eve and Abel and Moses? This is not just something that's in the future. This is the way he appears to everyone he's ever saved. He is going to bring his word. He's going to bring his power. He's going to, he is king. Oh, rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion and daughters of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh. He's a king that comes to bring his people the knowledge of his great salvation in our regeneration. As he says here, a bow and a crown is upon him. And he went forth conquering and to conquer. He's not waiting to do that. He had to do that when he saved me. He had to do that when he saved everyone that's in the church. He had to do that when he saves everyone in all time, whatever era, whatever time, whatever century. He's the one that comes conquering and to conquer. He's the only one that can take on this battle. We can't convince people by words. We can't convince people by argument. We can't convince people by the meanings of words. We cannot convince people of anything that is spiritual. We can't get to that level. We have the answer. We preach the answer is Christ. But only Christ can go and conquering and to conquer. Bring this to them. To raise them from the spiritual dead and cause them to recognize the fact that he is Lord and he is master. He is king. He's the resurrector. He's, he went forth conquering and to conquer. What a, a gracious statement we find with regard to the Lord. Now back in the book of First Timothy... This subject is brought up again. We're not looking for a king. We have a king. Behold, that king cometh. He came to Abel. He came to Adam. He came to, to uh, uh, Eve. He comes to everyone that he intends to come to. He comes in glorious power. He comes as the resurrector. He comes as the one that is able to take upon our every answer and turn it around and say, there's no hope in yourself. Here we find in this glorious passage of Scripture in the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 6 and verse 15. 1 Timothy, chapter 6 and verse 15. And the kings of the earth and the great men and rich men, excuse me, I don't have the right place. I'm still in Revelation. 1 Timothy, chapter 6, verse 15. Which is in his times... He shall show who is the blessed and only potentate. Now look at the last two phrases. King of kings. Now he had to reveal himself unto every Old Testament saint, just like he reveals himself to every New Testament saint. King of kings and Lord of lords. That's how he does his business. That's who he is. 
He's not going to reveal himself a lesser God. He's going to reveal himself as the great God. He's going to reveal himself as the great Savior. He's going to reveal himself as the great King. Behold, thy King cometh. And he comes every time he saves an individual when whatever part of the world, whatever nationality or race or creed or color, he comes with power through the preaching of the gospel. If I be lifted up, I will draw all unto me. And so it's a declaration of a great God. One more time over there in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, as we think about this king that comes, behold, thy king cometh. Well, we don't know him as king until he reveals himself to us. In fact, we're like those folks in the days of the Lord Jesus when he used that picture, that type, that shadow. He said, there's a whole host of them that says, we'll not have this man rule over us. And that's the way we are by nature. How, how can we change ourselves? We can't. Those accustomed to doing evil to do good, we can't. So we not, we're not going to recognize him as king, and we're not going to recognize him as lord. We're not going to recognize him as savior until he reveals himself to us, regenerates us, brings us out of death, brings us out of darkness, brings us out of all of that to his marvelous light. And then we're able to recognize him in the, in the word of God, in the preaching of the gospel, as the great king. Here in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 16, And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh. Has that changed? Or are we waiting for the future for that to happen? No, when he was there and he called Matthew. This was on his vesture and on his thigh. This, on his thigh, a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. How could he call Matthew or Mark or Saul of Tarsus and not be king? I will do all my battles. I'll get involved. I'll take care of it. The battle is not yours. It's the Lord's. That he was shared over there in the book of Joshua. The battle is not yours. The battle is the Lord's. And so it is today. And what does he do? He reveals himself just like this. Thy king cometh. Thy king cometh. Now he may come lowly. He may come born of a virgin. He may be laid in a manger. He may have grown up in a... In a uh, a worker man's household, a carpenter's household. All those things are the truth about our Savior, the Lord Jesus. But he is King of kings and Lord of lords. Everyone that was ever saved. He called those 11 to himself who knew about grace when he called them. He's King of kings and Lord of lords. He can do all that he pleases. We don't have to have him go to our will and our whim. He's going to do his will. How gracious it is that he gives us the grace to accept that will. The revelation there in chapter 19, verse 16, a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's how he appears to every one of the children he ever brings into life. Everyone he breathes in their nostrils a breath of life, they are his children, children of God, children of light, and he is their king. Behold, thy king cometh. Now, if we go back there to the book of, of Zechariah, let's look at the next part of that verse. Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Let's look at another part of that verse of scripture. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. 
Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. We find this is a name for those that God has caused to believe on his holy name. This is another name for those who are those he has chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. These are his children. These are the sheep of his pasture. This is all his, all in and all. This is the whole family of God put together. Circumcised and uncircumcised. Jew and Gentile. He said here, Behold, thy king cometh. Now in order for us to understand what that word behold is, we have to be able to see him. And in order to see him, we must be given eyes to see. We just don't see him. We're blind to the, the blessings of Christ. As we mentioned Sunday, those who around were around Jesus didn't know Jesus. They were, is not this his mother and this is his brethren? Is not, is not his... He from Nazareth and on and on, but they didn't recognize him as the one he was, the Messiah. There were some that recognized him as the Messiah. They did in the Old Testament too. It tells us about uh, most of the of the children of Israel that traveled from Egypt up to the borders of there to of uh, the Promised Land and turned around and went back. Those, the majority of them, died in unbelief, even though they were Jews and circumcised, they still died in unbelief. But those who are the true daughters of Zion get to see something. Those of the true daughter of Zion get to hear something. Those of the true daughters of Zion get to feel something. They get to feel the very presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. It goes on to tell us there, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. How gracious is that! that he would come to where we are, that he'd come to the place we are. He would never expect us to, to make a move to him in the pit that we're in. doesn't matter which country we're in, which nationality we're in, what religion we're in. There is, we often hear, and it's a misnomer that there are two religions. There's only one religion, but there is the gospel of Jesus Christ found in the gospel. And then there's religion. There's grace and there's religion. But there's not two religions. Here we have rejoice greatly, O daughter of Jerusalem, O daughter of Zion. Thy, behold, thy king cometh unto thee. Look at him. Look at his train. Holy, holy, holy is what we find in the book of Isaiah. For his train filled the temple. It was complete. He is in his ever-presentness with the church. And then, it tells us there in that verse of Scripture, He is just. That means he's righteous. He is righteous. Now, he's the only one that's righteous. We don't have any righteousness of our own. We don't have any appeal to God on what we've done. We don't have, it's all of debt if that's what we're doing. We're expecting God to pay us. But grace does not expect God to pay us. In fact, it's just the opposite. How could God give us anything? The condition that we're in, the fall that we have undergone. He is just. He is righteous. He is righteous in his government. Just think about it. He's, he's got the government is on his shoulders the government of the church, the government of the world, the government of the universe. He is righteous 
in his government. He is righteous in his cause. This is a righteous cause. Uh, uh, you know, you, you study a little history and you find things people say. Presidents say this and premiers say this and dictators say that this. this is a righteous cause. There's only one that's ever had a righteous cause, and that's God. He's only had a righteous cause. His cause is righteousness. His cause is based upon his righteousness. It's a righteous cause, and his righteousness is is uh, with regard to his character and his conduct. No one is like him. No one can come close to him. He is just. He has. He is just and justifier. He is the only one that is able to save his people from their sins. He is righteousness personified. He is the church's righteousness and their only righteousness. A verse of scripture that has come up many times recently, Bible classes and and messages that have gone forth from our pulpit and other speakers. But over there in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, certainly tells us about this God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that he is the righteous one. He cometh in just righteousness. He comes with all, he's the only one that is righteous. He's the only one accepted and and uh, and uh, respected by God Almighty as the righteous one. Here in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30. Notice that verse of scripture with me. There's four things that are mentioned there and all of them are impeccable. <laughs> Just outstandingly wonderful for the church. We We don't have any of this on our own, but we have it all in Christ. We have every bit of righteousness imputed to us. Notice this. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who is of God, is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Now, this is four things that are brought up in this verse of Scripture. Many more are brought up in Scriptures about our Savior as he fills in the parts that we say, well, we got these four, and then he says, well, here's a dozen more. And we go through life a little further, and someone comes along and says, well, here's a dozen more qualities and qualifications of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, that fills in these things and causes us to rejoice. And then nothing is left up to chance, and nothing is left up to us. It's all in God's hand. So it says there, he is made unto us wisdom. We thought we had it all figured out. We didn't have anything figured out. He reveals unto us true wisdom. We And he's all righteousness. Self-righteousness never got anybody anywhere. His righteousness gets us into the kingdom. We're never educated into the kingdom. We're born into the kingdom. And his righteousness imputed to us means that sin is taken away, put away, far as the east is from the west. Not a charge of sin shall be got, brought against us. Who is it will lay a charge against God's elect? He's the one that justified. And then we find in that verse of scripture that he's our sanctification. We don't work for sanctification. It's already been given to the church. It's no wonder the daughter of Zion and the daughter of Jerusalem rejoice greatly in their king because he is all their sanctification. He is all their righteousness. He is all their wisdom. And finally it says he's all their redemption. He paid the complete and total price for all of those that he chose in Christ before the foundation of the world. So we have something to shout about. We have something to be glad about. We, have, we can rejoice even in the night seasons over this very subject 
We have everything in Christ. And then it goes on to tell us, going back there very quickly to that passage of Scripture of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Notice with me again, chapter 9, verse 9. It says there, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, he's coming unto you, lowly, oh, excuse me, he is just and having salvation, lowly. Now that's how he came to this world, lowly. And we're going to stop right here tonight, and we'll bring this subject up the next time we get to speak to you. Riding on a donkey, on an ass, upon the colt, the foal of an ass, this is what he does for his people. He's lowly. He didn't come born in a king's mansion. He came lowly to take upon himself our sin. He became as a man, a body thou hast prepared for me. So we get to rejoice some more. What did he do for his people? He did everything God required. He fulfilled all the tasks. And he came out victorious. He sits at the right hand of the Father. And the children, the daughter of Zion, the daughter of Jerusalem, the children of God, the elect, the sheep, rejoice in him greatly.